Radioland, Podcast Bill, and all the ships at sea. My name is Kate Wolf, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. Joining me today is my co-host, Medea Ocher, the managing editor of LARB. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. And today on the show, we have Amelia Gray. Yep. Amelia Gray is a local writer, a local girl, hit it big. It's <laughs> true. <laughs> uh, she is the author of a new novel called Isadora. About Isadora Duncan. Yeah. And which was a really nice motivation for me to actually look into who Isadora Duncan was, because it seemed, for me at least, this was a name that I knew... I sort of pretended that I knew exactly what Isadora Duncan did. I knew she was a dancer, but aside from that, yeah. my knowledge of her and her life was pretty vague. And she is a really interesting person. Oh, yeah. With a really crazy and tragic death. Tragic death. That's all I knew about her, actually, was her death. Was the Shocking. Yeah. Um, Should we give it away? No. I mean, that's not in the... I know, not, but I mean just her okay. death. <laughs> I guess she's already died, so... It, <laughs> It's not, not a part, surprise. It's, and it's not a spoiler it for the novel spoiler. either. It's because, not in the book. Um, she famously died because of her long scarf. Yes, getting caught in the spokes of a wheel and then getting dragged out of the vehicle through the window. <sighs> Insane. And Amelia's book also deals with a very tragic event in her life that also involves death, the death of her children. So it's a tragic life. Tragic life, but it seemed like she also had a lot of good times as well. So that's true. Anyways, let's get to the interview. Yeah, let's find out more. Okay. We're here with Amelia Gray. Amelia Gray is the author of five books, including AMPM, Museum of the Weird, Threats, and most recently the novel Isadora, which is just out from FSG. Her fiction and essays have appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, Tin House, and Vice. She is the winner of the NYPL Young Lion of FC2's Ronald Sukenik Innovative Fiction Prize and a finalist for the Penn Faulkner Award for Fiction. She lives in Los Angeles. Thank you, Amelia, for being here. Thank you so much for having me. We're thinking you want to read from your novel, I would Isadora. love to read from Isadora. So I'm going to read just from the prologue of the book. This is the first bit of it. The little one ate toast and cheese and kissed the cloth with buttered lips. The older chose a soup and sipped it plaintive from her spoon. Napkin in her lap, poor love, ever obedient, white lace twitching in the breeze. This crumb-coated pear, arms lifting for mama, only know to take in love and churn it out again, offered up still warm from the soft shell of their delicate hands. What is love but fingernails and backward glances? Picking the pills from the lace laid square at her neck, the girl smooths with spit the cotton rose pinned at her throat. White socks and soft shoes, sleeves like diving bells. The tailor blessed this dress and wished her well, stitching her name into its seams, Deirdre, ever serious, minding her manners while the grown-ups talk. Her brother Patrick, fresh as cut grass, Buttered baby in a high seat, soles of his kicking feet soft as a calf's new cheek. Flower-skinned in curls, knowing without lesson the whole of love in golden waves. Patrick of the rumpled pleats framed in red wicker. His sweetheart mouth, that handsome hair. He fusses when his toast is gone and gnaws the cloth his papa presses to his face. There's a winsome pop, collar sharp and tied. 
The man feels most at home in a city that bears and shares his name, a proud piece of him inked on every calling card, cut into door frames and hanging signs as greeting and deference in one, Paris. He came here as a sweet young man and grew to become as hungry and moneyed as the city itself, as damp-spirited in the mornings, as shining after dark. He skims the paper's late edition, twisting his thick ring as he reads. Black onyx in gold, a gift to himself for his most recent birthday, rare only in the sense that he usually doesn't need an excuse for extravagance. The resident men of Nolly sur seine retreat at the sight of him. They crowd the corners, hands to their lopsided mouths. The body is a column. It begins with each foot steady in the dirt, rock-long fastened to the ankle, shin to knee bearing the pelvis, that busy fulcrum, friend to the waist, spanning wing from root, the cup of power and the seat of it. The belly and back, jaw to the trunk, its sternum a wagging tongue, and there, buried in the rib like a line of charged powder, the solar plexus. Its ray powers far-flung satellites of the hands and mind, belly and breast, shoulder and sex, willing the feet to move. Any cafe in the world is a crowded constellation of these rays, a sea of waves, cut with men bearing cakes and tea on silver trays that gleam through the drizzling spring. Thank That's you. beautiful. Thank, Thank you. you so much. So we already know some of the characters from the book just from that reading. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if you could tell us, kind of set up the novel a little bit and tell us who you've written about. Sure. So that section is the meal that Isadora Duncan and her two children are having with Paris Singer, her lover and the father of her youngest child. They're in Paris. It's a beautiful April day. After that short scene, the children go with their nurse and on the way home, the car stalls and stops and the driver gets out to crank the engine and the car rolls into the river and they die. So that kind of starts the action of the novel and the rest of Isadora's life, which would be spent grieving and trying to see how she would go on. The book follows her and Paris and there's appearances from her former lover, Gordon Craig. There's her sister, Elizabeth, who comes in from Germany to manage the affairs. There's Elizabeth's lover, Max, and then Elizabeth's new lover, Romano. So there's kind of this kind of growing cast of characters. Isadora had one sister and two brothers, and her mother comes into town, and the whole family is around. And the book takes place between Paris, Greece, and Italy, with a little bit in England. So it's very kind of hopping around Europe. She's avoiding her grief. She's moving towards it. She's in Turkey for some time. She's, you know, it's a grief travelogue. (laughs) (laughs) For listeners who are not familiar with who Isadora Duncan was, would you just tell us briefly when she was a dancer? Sure. Yeah. 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 They call her the mother of modern dance. People remember her as being a very expo, what do you say? Expository. (laughs) Expository dancer, sort of Mm -hmm. an inventive dancer, Mm. because her dances felt very natural in contrast to the ballet russe, which was the style at the time. So she came in pre-20s, kind of living this sans-limite sort of life. She's a California girl, but got to Europe as fast as she could and stayed there for a lot of her life. And she has this kind of Grecian ideal, this kind of bodily, natural sense, this she didn't really love the rising trend of calisthenics that was happening with women's bodies. So she, you know, she she came up with this concept of dance that was very, it was meant to seem very natural, but it was very planned and purposeful and choreographed. And so it's this kind of interesting, she's always interested me as a figure, someone who supposedly made this natural dance, but it was very 
edited, I would say, because mm-hmm. it's sort of the novelist's way as well. So you had been interested in her for a long time? Or? I guess it's more accurate to say she kind of danced at the margins for a long time uh-huh. for mm-hmm. me. And when I was writing about It Girls conceptually in 2012 and started reading more about her life, and I, I had known that the dance was a very... Her dance appeared spontaneous. That was the word I wanted, but it was mm. actually very planned and edited. I always loved that. But I'm not I'm not a dancer and I don't know much about dance at all. So but then when I was researching her, I found out about how her children died, and that kind of opened up this whole different side. To think of artists living a the span of their careers and through the span of their lives through also this terrible grief and I mean, that's always been really fascinating. So the death of her children provided an entrance point for you in terms of, like, why do you think the grief was where you thought, oh, I see how I can tell the story? Yes. Well, this book is a little rare for me in that the first scene, which I just read, was actually the first thing I wrote Mm -hmm. when I first started the book. And that never is what ends up happening. But when I was, I was reading about the children, I was in Toronto at the time, and I And my impulse was just, you know, I really wanted to write that scene, like the last meal that they had. And that first line, the little one ate toast and cheese and kissed the cloth with butter lips, was the first thing that kind of appeared to me as like an idea. So I was just really writing to kind of consider that sense and feeling. And like what Isadora, who is known as, there was a mean nickname for her, which was Duncan Disorderly, which, you know, she partied. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she partied kind of before the 20s when it was more kind of socially acceptable for women to party in the way that she liked, which was with champagne and <laughs> tarts. Yeah. It's the best way to party. <laughs> Among the best ways, top <laughs> yeah, five yeah. ways to party. <laughs> champagne and strawberry tarts. But yeah, she, I don't know. It was kind of interesting and an entry point and I never had the sense of, okay, I'm going to write a 400-page book and this is how it's going to start. I don't know. Maybe Irving comes mm-hmm. in with that in mind. But, and I know actually Joyce Carol Oates writes the last line and has it in her computer so that she has kind of an anchor point. But I, at this time anyway, do it in a different way where I just kind of wade into the water a little bit. Are you trying to keep things that happen in the book secret? Or do we have spoiler <laughs> alerts in the book? Or? I would say let's not spoil the very last bit. Okay. Because that's been a big surprise for a reader. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but, but the rest that makes is fine. Sense. Yeah. Okay. So it's interesting that you chose a year, this year as mm-hmm. the kind of container for the novel. And it seems like there's a lot of other great kind of containers and formal ways that you've grouped it together. And so mm-hmm. I was wondering your decision to tell it from multiple points of view. Mm-hmm. So you had the story and you kind of knew the basic timeline, mm-hmm. but how did you then open it up to include the other characters who narrate the book? Yes. Well, it's interesting. I did research in a funny way because I love research and I can definitely get into the woods and never return mm-hmm. by exhaustively researching someone's life. And so I really, when I was writing the first draft, held myself back from learning about her. So I read kind of through the year. I knew that she went to Greece and was grieving in Greece. I knew that mm-hmm. she went, yeah, she was in Albania for a little bit and then was in Turkey, and then Italy, and then to Paris. And I sort of, the more I read further, the more my impulse was to just kind of just stop and stay in this moment. So it was halfway through the book when I learned what happened the following year, which was a stunning thing, and which was immediately to me the end of the novel. So that was kind of the first half. And then the other half was, I thought I would try as an exercise almost to stay in her point of view for the entire book. And then it swiftly became clear that she would 
be kind of a difficult primary <laughs> <Yeah>. and sole <laughs> narrator. So she's in first person present tense. And I think of the world revolving around her, you know, literally, she's the only one kind of in the moment and everything else is in third past, which felt right. It was strange to me because I've never even messed around with tense. I had always done threats is all third, close, pretty close third. But when I started seeing her as being first and then recognizing that in scenes between her and her sister, if it didn't feel right in first present, if I switched it to third past, then it became clear it was in her sister's point of view. It was those kind of wild things started happening. Hmm. And I lived in a lot of fear and doubt about that point of view issue for a long time. Yeah. but Has that happened to you before where a formal decision sort of opens up the story for you? Yes. I've often played with formal decisions because I kind of think of myself as a flash fiction writer mm-hmm. almost. My first book is 120 flash fiction stories. They're little tiny nuggets that are just kind of a glimpse into the scene or into the world. And I always feel pretty comfortable with that kind of snapshot feeling. But then as I wrote Threats, for example, the practice was kind of writing a very short chapter and kind of getting everything out of that one kind of glimpse that I could, and then just piling those chapters onto each other, mm-hmm. like a milfo cake, the kind that has a million little tiny layers, or one of those cronuts. Um, <laughs> and, and Isidore is kind of a, sim- it is a similar structure. It's short chapters and glimpses, and but there is a little, the breadth is much larger, and then each chapter does have a little more, I have a little more patience naturally than I did five or six years ago. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, coming to you from Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. And now for this week's book recommendation. We have Jess Arndt back in the studio with us today. Jess is the author of a collection of short stories called Large Animals. It is out now from Catapult. And Jess was nice enough to come back and give us a book recommendation. Jess, what are you recommending today? Today I'm recommending a very slim book called The Last Wolf. It's from New Directions, and it's by Laszlo Krasnohorkai, who's a Hungarian writer. You did um, great with the name. Thanks. We were I, both I, worried we about it. We were worried, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, well, anyone can correct us. Please do. <laughs> it's actually one of these books that New Directions has been doing where they um, one story is one direction and you flip it, and there's another oh. little novella um, going the other direction. But the one I'm interested in is The Last Wolf, and it's like a very strange tale. Uh, it's 70 pages, one sentence. Wow. Um, and it's a story told by a kind of depressed academic who doesn't seem to be quite himself. There's no other kind. There's no other kind. Um, but he's telling it to, speaking of bars, a Berlin bartender who's like super bored and at the start of his shift and like barely like giving enough to like keep the story going. And... Basically, the academic had been asked at some point in his career not that long ago by a committee of people who he'd never heard of before to come to a very lonely and dry region of Spain called Extremadura and to write about their culture. And begrudgingly, he goes, but the whole time thinking he's not the right one and he shouldn't be there. And when he's there, he finds out about this kind of haunted, sad story about a pack of wolves that one by one was killed off. And that's all he can think about. Oh, that sounds so good. Yeah, so um, I loved it. And it really reminded me of my favorite kinds of writing. Like, reminded me a lot of Roberto Bolaño's, like, best stories. Wow. Where it feels like there's something terrible 
just at the other side of it. And what brought you to this story in particular? How did you get here? Um, the really great people at Skylight Books recommended it in their world literature section. Oh, they Skylight are, is a, they know what they're doing over at Skylight. They do. Skylight is a local bookstore in Los Angeles, in Silver Lake. So this is a nice way also to say hello to them. <laughs> and have you read any of his other work now that you've kind of entered in through the story? No, but I'm realizing that like one of my best friends and the readers who I most admire gave me um, a much longer novel of his some years ago that embarrassingly I haven't read. And now I'm like hoping I can find it in my books because I'm really ex excited to read more. Great. Tell us the name of the of the book again or the story. The story is The Last Wolf. And it is by... You're going to make me do it again? Yes, I am. <laughs> sure am. Okay, let's try it. Laszlo Krasnohorkai. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Jess. Thanks. That was Jess Arndt, author of Large Animals, out now from Catapult. You're listening to LARB Radio Hour. And now back to our interview with Amelia Gray, whose new novel is Isadora. I want to get back to the relationship between Isadora and her sister and mm -hmm. other people in the book later, but um, do you call them inner titles? I, it's not quite what it is, but the, the, the chapter titles. Yes. What, what would you call those? You know, there's something that, that happened in Victorian literature, this sort of the intro that for your listeners, it's a chapter where Isadora goes to kind of rescue a man on his mother's request. The, ch the chapter starts with this little italic line that says, Isadora travels to Aestefanos with the goal of helping someone besides her for once. <laughs> and so there's this little kind of twist of what's happening. It's sort of, I almost think of it as Elizabeth's voice a little bit. It's a uh, little okay. snotty sometimes towards Isadora as, as a narcissist. It so, has a different, it, I, I just loved it because I thought it had a kind of comic yes. tone and a very different tone um, from what would, you know, preceded or... Yes. So, yeah, yeah. It was, those were working in a, in a great way, I thought. Oh, good. Thank you. Yeah, there's a there's some sense in there of, if, if I didn't have that one line specifically on that section, the reader would go in seeing, you know, maybe wondering a little bit if the writer is seeing her as a hero or if this is a straight story of like the white woman going to save a man <laughs> in trouble or something, which I was, I was very cognizant of. And so myself as the writer kind of wanted a little bit of framing in mm -hmm. a way that kept it from going so deeply into, you know, it's a book of intense grief and sadness. And it's a, maybe for some of a strange summer read, but it's also a, it's a travel book and it has these, and it's framed as such by a, a family that I, I always kind of read as very cynical towards Isadora. Mm -hmm. Is there, um, do you have a, uh, I mean, this may be too personal, but did you have a personal experience with grief where you thought, oh, I can sort of feel my way through this myself? Yes, I think it's, it's a combo. I mean, everyone has moments of grief. I had a, I lost a friend in the middle of writing this book and also a, a family member or two, but I don't have children. And so mm -hmm. it's, and it's also kind of this combination of exploring what seems to me would be the, the most tragic event of any existence, which is the loss of a child and, and two at once, you know, and yeah. um, right. So, so there was that, that was an exploration that I wanted to do very honestly and very unflinchingly. And also kind of working through my own sort of channels and pathways. And 
there's a certain kind of writer who who likes to to write the thinly veiled story of their own lives. I think that's I, I think it's perfectly valid and, and also very wonderful to read sometimes. But then there's the other kind of writer, which is me and many others, that do that same thing but heavily veiled or veiled in <laughs> metaphor or kind of reversed or mm-hmm. you know, so so in writing about sisters, I have a sister, but Ooh. I but I know, but I, I I kind of look at it in a different way than anything sort of real about my life or my relationship with my sister who I love and who loves me. <laughs> right. But right. so because maybe you should explain that the relationship between Isadora and Duncan and her sister and I, uh, so how much I, just mm-hmm. before I ask you, how much of this was based, I mean, how much of the story is real, real, completely based off research you did and how much is your interpretation of yes of the facts? Well, I would say maybe 30% is real based off of biographies of Isadora, and 30% is maybe invented from me. And then there's this last 30% that's based off of Isadora's autobiography, which was largely fictional and fictionalized, (laughs) and her own kind of wackadoo story of what was happening in in her life, which I also loved. I loved the narrative that she created, and I, I I found it really fun to work with. So reading her autobiography, I didn't get too much of an idea of her sister Elizabeth, who is always referred to, unfortunately, as lame. Uh, yeah, she had a she had some kind of like like impediment in okay. walking one of her feet, I think, which was also reading between the lines the reason why she didn't go very far in her own dance career. She had wanted uh, to be a dancer. She as wanted well. to be a dancer, and they both learned from their mother. They both learned ballet. And then Isadora was giving lessons at nine and the whole narrative is of her as an ingenue and, and, you know, coming to Berlin to give lectures. I know that her sister was there with her. And so a lot of that was an exploration of of Elizabeth Duncan as somebody who is very much in her sister's shadow mm-hmm. uh, and, and kind of wondering about where that leads. She ends up dating for her whole life a strange and unpleasant man in Max. <laughs> dating for her whole life. I think I believe they were together for much of much of their lives. Yes. And, and Max who has designs on Isadora. He does. In and his designs on Isadora were invented by, okay. by me. So okay. okay. I, but it says it wouldn't shock me right. too because he was and there's even less about Max, you know. All all I know is that he ended up a virulent Nazi in the 40s, which you can kind of see that checks in the mail a little bit. But that was an interesting thing to kind of look at what's the kind of character or the kind of person that goes deep into the darkness only 20 years or 30 years in in the future. Um, how does that person start? What's his childhood like? And what does he, how does he look at the world or at his own idea of greatness? And so I invented him in many ways, but I, I invented a man who had great ideas of legacy, but kind of not, didn't have the equipment or ability or even interest in doing the work side of legacy. So that's, I think that kind of empty vessel is the sort that gets filled with whatever is of the time. Right. Right. And, and so he was working at the school, these (laughs) schools that Isadora Duncan had for her dance. Yes, she had a few schools, and she was managing the one in Paris at the time, and Elizabeth had the one in uh, Darmstadt, Germany, and he was working there with her, so the two of them managed that school. They seemed like very practical people and kind of pulled out of their pretty simple existence just running a dance school to, to come attend to this sort of formless, endless well of grief that Isadora had oh, yeah. was, was in the midst of. And what brought you, you mentioned um, earlier that you had worked on a project about It Girls. Mm -hmm. 
Um, what brought you to them? I mean, it, it's interesting that you mentioned um, people who are vessels who mm-hmm. somehow contain the the being of their time. Right. Um, and eight girls are kind of like that in mm-hmm. a certain way. Right. Um, so what, what brought you to that as a subject or initially? Yes. Well, that was just a little magazine assignment. I think it was V Magazine. We're, we're just kind of collecting. It wasn't even assigned to just me. I think I was one of many, but it got me started thinking about it, you know, mm-hmm. of the kind of thinking of the, the, the woman emblematic of her time and what that would look like per era, what that looks like now, and how kind of women are, are meant to carry ideas, sort of like we carry children sometimes through um, the course of, of an era, just as through their lives. So is there a contemporary girl that you are interested in? I mean, I'm always interested in, uh, I'm interested in the Kardashians. I'm interested yeah. in, yes, always interested in the Kardashians. You know, I'm interested in all the the extra Kardashians, the Black Chinas, the Amber Roses, mm-hmm. the kind of, the constellation of of fame that, that this creates. And that whole, that whole house is fascinating oh, to yeah. me. Yeah. It's interesting also because motherhood is such a large part of their Right. Um, story mm-hmm. right, or their or their existence right. and, and their fame where a lot of what it seems like is I've not watched the show mm-hmm. but you know obviously I know who they are right. um, but it seems like a large percentage of what it is that they are about is having children and, right. and getting pregnant and, and splitting up and right. like motherhood is still very much yes. a, a part of what an it girl does it seems like Right. And there's a there's a certain, you know, cultural cult of motherhood that that we see. And, and I, I'm also, you know, mommy bloggers. This is really fascinating to me. Yeah. I'm very into vloggers and the kind of <laughs> so, sort of self-creation of their own of myth, their own myth making at whatever level, whether you have a handheld camera and you're doing something on YouTube or you you have a show and a spinoff show and three previous spinoff shows and you're dealing with the minutia of fertilization on television. Right. You know, it's all it's all pretty fascinating. It's interesting in the novel, Isadora meets Eleonora. Right. Is it Duce or Deuce? I'm not I don't know how to say my, her last name. My audiobook reader said that she had seen it as as Duce. And okay. but I I he, I think of it as Deuce, so we've got to get to the bottom of this. Right. So maybe someone can call so it. So she if she's an it girl that mm-hmm. uh was before Isadora. Right. Right. And they kind of have a rivalry, but also a love right. interest. Right, right. Um, so it was funny to see them. It's kind of like, you know, when they do like Batman versus um Whoever Superman. another, yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's kind of the two of them come together in the novel, which I, right. which I liked a lot. Um, yeah, it's the opportunity to have two very self-interested types arm in arm at the beach, and fabulous. Yeah, yeah I know. It was very. It was so fun to write Eleanor Dews, who's is this beautiful, kind of stunningly profound Italian actress of her day, as far as. I've read because there's nothing to watch of her. Well, I think she, I actually just went to the town where she in, is buried. Really? In Asolo, which yes. is right north of um, Venice. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I think, so I was researching her a little for that. She made one film. Wow. Which is difficult to find. It's hard to find. Yeah. And oh, she was okay. in discussion with D.W. Griffith about a movie shortly before she died. Wow. And just a little Eleanor Deuce. Uh, yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, trivia. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, yeah, there's so many parts of the book that I kept on thinking, God, this must have been so fun. Mm-hmm. Like, I was wondering, were you, was there anything you were wary of 
writing, you know, not really historical fiction per- exactly, but were you worried, oh, I really don't want to do A, B, or C mm. that I've read in other books? Were there books that were oh. really helpful to you in terms of models of how to handle real people who mm-hmm. lived a hundred years ago? Yes. Well, I think often of the novel, The General and His Labyrinth, which is Marquez, and which he wrote after he won the Nobel, I believe. And it's a, I mean, it's a stunning book. But I I wonder if after he, I know that his goal from reading about the book is that his goal was to write an incredibly accurate novel down to the moon cycles, down to the kinds of hammocks they were in and the kind of the boat and the precise route. And it was sort of as if he wanted to illuminate this story in a way that scholars could go look at it in a legitimate way as a piece of scholarship. So that was really, it. so so the aims are very different than what I'm writing and so purposefully so, but it was, I kind of wanted to do the opposite of that in some ways, you know, to really access the internal life of the characters and to real, and to understand sort of how things are similar to today, how things are how life was just a year before World War One broke out and how the real feeling of the place. So I would do things like read, I would go find the newspaper from the day to see what Elizabeth would have been reading, you know, mm-hmm. on April 25th of 1913, just to kind of see what was happening. Mm-hmm. And then it really gave me a sense, in addition to a book called um, 1913, The World Before the Great War, it gave me a really really good sense of what people were thinking about politically and more importantly, what they weren't. There was, people were just living their lives. Right. You know, so it was, it was kind of both of those, those ways. And whenever I heard of, of somebody writing historical fiction without worrying too much about the granular, granular aspect of research or like what kind of boat they were on, just making that up, I always felt a little bit more relaxed, you know? Right. You know, because there's no... I mean, I wrote a whole novel about dentistry and made sure it was incredibly accurate. And then I had one question about the its accuracy from a dental hygienist magazine, and they just wanted to know if the toothworm thing that I wrote about was real. And I was like, yes, I did a lot of work, but that was real. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. L- writing writing facts in fiction has has helped me learn that people would rather have a captivating story, and I would rather write one than than to be lashed to the master reality a little. Exactly, yeah. yeah. That's such a beautiful phrase. Oh. <laughs> I wonder if we should just... Should we just end there? Yeah. Maybe you could say it one more time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> lashed to the master reality. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, well, Amelia, thank you so much for coming. Yes, thanks And for congratulations me. on your wonderful new book. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for having me. This was very fun. We've been speaking with Amelia Gray, whose new novel is Isadora out now from FSG. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And if you like the show, leave us a review and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is Ernesto Oleano. Our researcher is Chloe Chap. Production assistant from William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, and Jake Levins. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who's no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 